Hi, this is Peg Lake from the Dingies, and you're listening to my chapter of As the Story Grows. What would you say you do here? Have a good time all the time. Dominate. Who's got it better than us? Nobody! What in God's holy name are you blathering about? Well, I'll tell you what I'm blathering about. I've got information, man. I want you to be realistic. What do you love about music? I am being realistic. As the story grows. I always want to be part of a small rebellion. You got this, Travis. Make him wait for it. Boom. talk to you i feel like uh dingies are one of those uh not forgotten about bands but maybe one of the lost in the shuffle bands from uh the late 90s early 2000s era of tooth and nail and and you've been making records since then uh some really great records since then uh so i'm really excited to talk to you uh, about ska and, and music in general uh so how did you get into music? Um, well, I was super into bands, probably since Guns N' Roses. And okay. uh, also my my older brother, who's like my half-brother, and my dad uh, gave me Bob Marley tapes when I was like probably the same age, 12. Um and then a, a couple years later was like alternative rock and I was way into a lot of the LA bands, uh, Chains Addiction, um, Chili Peppers, uh, Mary's Danish and, uh, Fishbone. And then getting into Fishbone is when I really wanted to like play an instrument um and uh i i remember asking my mom like in fourth grade when when kids were asked whether they wanted to join the band and they had an assembly where a little orchestra came and everybody showed their different instrument i wanted to play saxophone then and she told me that it wasn't like affordable to rent a sax or whatever and uh so I didn't I didn't really play in school until I was um about seventeen, so like junior year of high school. And okay. uh I, I was um friends with Mojo from the Supertones and uh we kinda had this little joke band um called Chucky Dickens and the Traveling Wheelbarrels. And uh, they were like, (laughs) 
They were like <laughs> funny songs. There, there was a song called James Earl Jones and wondering like why at the end of Star Wars he's a white guy. And um, they were they were all written by Mojo and uh, this other guy Brad, who was like the bass player. And we would um, play like coffee houses and. And we would play down in Laguna Beach, like on the corner, on Friday night. And uh, I didn't really do anything in the band because I didn't even know how to play an instrument. <laughs> and uh, but they just kind of, you know, adopted me into the band. There was some, there was like a couple people that were in the band that didn't play. Anything. <laughs> uh, you you were like uh, you were like the dude from the Boston's who just dances. Yeah, and, uh, and I didn't even have to dance yeah. either. <laughs> um, I had a couple lines and a couple songs. It was more like a, um, kind of like a, a performance, you know, like it was like a stand-up comedy almost, really. And the songs were funny, but we, it was all the interaction between the songs too. So anyway, I was I was in that with them, and there was this guy that we were friends with. Uh, we called Rock, and uh, he was kind of around us and a friend of the, or a fan of that band and he knew how much I was into Fishbone at the time and he also loved Fishbone and loved Angelo and uh, he just told me one day hey man I just want to give you this saxophone he gave me an alto saxophone I mean it's the one I played in Dingy's the whole time and uh, he just told me you know I know you love Angelo so much and you're way into it so I want to give you this And, and yeah so I went to Lessons right, right away, I went down to like the local music house, no idea, and I went in there, <clears throat> and the guy who taught sax is named Keith Berry, and he's a, um, he's the dean of the Silver Lake uh, Music Conservatory, that's probably not the right name, but it's basically him and Flea uh, from the Chili Peppers oh, wow. made, made this music school, uh, I think it's just for kids, really. Really, uh, yeah, and, um, but at that time, he was just, like, the sax teacher at, like, my local, like, music instrument, not guitar center, but, you know, like, the the local one, and yeah. uh, he taught me for a while, and he's like, what got you into wanting to play, and I told him, he's like, man, I grew up with Angelo, like, he used to borrow my horns all the time, and so I was super stoked, and then, uh, at the same time, I was kind of learning chords on the guitar and i don't know that's it that's that's it i guess that's super cool you were you were definitely drawn to like reggae and ska right away oh yeah yeah i mean yeah so before i even really knew what it was i mean it was just all music to me but right right but yeah so in uh in high school uh I think uh, my freshman year when I was like 14 years old um, is when I started going to shows. And the first show I went to was a Fishbone show in like 91. So that was like reality of my surroundings. Like probably like a couple years before they were like at their height, like on the uh, Lollapalooza tour and stuff. That was just yeah. Gym, like in a college gym, it was super dope, and and then from then on, yeah, I had these friends who were all a little bit older than me at that time, and a couple of them had cars, and 
it was just a bunch of girls, and we would all go to the local ska show. I mean, it's so hard, I think, to convey what the OC ska scene was like in the that 90s, early 90s, especially before it became big and mainstream. Like, there was a show all like almost every night, you know, and you can go see great, you know, it was just a fully functioning, uh, self-supporting scene, you know, and it always had kids and the shows were packed and sweaty and fun and full of energy. And so we would go see, like, No Doubt way before, you know, the first album, No Doubt. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, way before they were on, you know. Yeah, even before. Yeah. I went to the first oh, before show that. Where, they, where they announced Beacon Street. Like, I was there when they're like, here's our new album we made called Beacon Street. I didn't even know, you know, like, there's no promotion or anything. <laughs> Just yeah. get to the show. Yeah. And, uh, so, I mean, free shows, free No Doubt shows. I remember that common, being common, you know. And, yeah. uh, you know, yeah, we saw so much good stuff in those days, like, Dance All Crashers, The Hepcat, Let's Go Bowling, and then, you know, all the wacky stuff, too, like uh, Aquabats and Aerobic Fish and just that whole thing, man. It was just bustling. It's crazy how it became big, and then it just kind of... <laughs> I mean, it's still there, but it's totally like a different world, you know? Right, it was probably, like, comparable to, like, the hardcore scene, like, five six seven years previous right it's like thing just bubbling waiting to explode and then right yeah so the first i mean my whole high school career it was all scotches but then halfway through like is when i met mojo and kind of um became aware of like that scene and i went to all those shows too like those hardcore shows focused and unashamed and I mean, I don't even know the names of most of them, but man, those were good too. <laughs> That's cool. So, how did uh, I know you? You had that quote-unquote band with Mojo. Uh, were there other bands you did before the Dingies? Once you learned to play saxophone and guitar. No. Um, no. No. I mean, uh, at one point, I think around the same time as the Dingies started, I kind of had the idea of maybe playing guitar and singing and then I had a, a roommate who lived in our house and played bass. I forget if we ever like actually got together and jammed or not. But um that was like all at the same moment as like the dingies forming and I just kinda, you know I didn't do anything with those ideas. So you guys you guys for a while there kinda double dipped with the supertones as far as members, yeah. Yeah, well I mean the dingies was formed on a supertones uh road gig that I was on and Bean was on too and so just me and Bean and then like the whole Supertones band and so we went out it was like two shows like one in Texas one in Oklahoma and then like come back home you know it wasn't like a tour mm-hmm. um, and yeah so when we were on that little trip it was me and Bean and, and Dave Chevalier from Supertones and Tony Terusa. We, I don't know, we just formed the band, like the idea, like, I think the idea was to play in the OC ska scene without 
the like attachment of oh this Christian band thing, you know, because mm-hmm. Supertones, you know, they wanted to go up and do their full like missionary presentation during every show, and some local shows that thought they were just hiring a ska band or whatever, like the promoters and, and especially even the audience, the kids in the audience, they'd be pissed <laughs> when they would. Yeah to try and do that so you're kind of naturally like driven to just play the church and the Christian festivals show stuff um and I think Tony and Dave were like you know we want to play I mean it sucks to call it but we call them normal shows you know (laughs) we want to play normal shows (laughs) but uh so that was kind of the idea of the dingies I mean we still wanted it all to be like what our idea at the time was of a a band full of, like, Christian guys who are on the same level or same age, you know. But it wasn't going to be about, you know, anything but just trying to play amongst the bands that we liked in the scene, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yeah, so then when we got back, I had a friend who was learning trombone at the same time as I was learning sax. And, uh, and then we had this uh, whose name is Eric Jones, and then Jeff Holmes, who's on Armageddon Massive, is the original guitar player. Like he's like a brother of one of our other friends. Um, yeah, no, that's it. Those six guys in the summer of '96 when we got back from those Supertones Road gigs, we like formed the band, and that was like a Six piece, like ska core, in the full horn section, um, and everybody throwing songs in, like, and everybody throwing parts into songs, you know, like it was like a real, like melting pot style of of creating those songs in the first year. Yeah. Is is that kind of why? Armageddon Massive feels a little not disjointed because I think the way the album flows it feels cohesive but why there's so many different parts in there because you had so many people contributing to the songwriting process no none of the songs on Armageddon Massive were the original band okay the original band is I mean there's a few songs floating out there of those those songs from 1996 but that's kind okay. of consider what we what we consider our demos, you know. And uh, those six kind of stock or songs, yeah, none of them are on Armageddon Massive, and those are the original so songs that Brandon heard because, of course, Tony was on tour and saw Brandon somewhere and gave him our sucky little like three song demo. We recorded six songs, but the original like printed up cassette demo only had three. And so Brandon wanted to sign us thinking he had another, like, kind of ska core, super tones <laughs> type, yeah, you know, stomp on the distortion pedal on the chorus kind of ska, you know? Yeah. And, yeah, and then, but but then when he signed us, um, uh, Tony was like, well, I, Tony and Dave both were like, well, we can't do it. Tony and Dave were both in the Supertones, and they were, like, really becoming big. But Dave was also 
trying to like graduate high school. So like he would be on tour, but then he'd have to come home and yeah, he'd have to come home and attend some like high school thing so he could graduate. So that's so funny. He he was mostly focused on the the graduation thing, and then gotcha. yeah. So him. So then it was down to um just me and Jeff and Dean and uh John Bond at that time, well Eric Jones, we called him John Bond, but um he became a tattoo artist and uh it was kinda at that same time where he's like, you know, do I wanna play trombone or do I you know, wanna be a tattoo artist? And so yeah, it was just down to the three of us when we got signed by Brandon who I think Brandon was expecting like, you know, some some Skakor, you know, and he thought it was going to be big because of that. But um, uh, at one point, we made demos of maybe like half of the songs that are on Armageddon Massive, like a second group of demos. And uh, Dave and John Bond, they're on there playing horns and stuff. Uh, but for some reason, Tony couldn't make it, even though we wrote all the new songs with him, like Rebel Youth and... Uh, um, Working Man's Blues and um, I can't remember all of them that are that are not, that made it onto Armageddon Massive. But um, so Ethan Luck, who's just like in all the bands around us already, um, was like, "Oh, well, I'll come into the studio and you know I know all the songs from like local shows and and he played drums on that second set of Dingy's demos." which is, like, the early Armageddon Massive stuff. <laughs> and so we were like, okay, well, we got signed. We're going to make an album. It's just us four now, like, no horn section. And, uh, you know, let's just beat the clash. So, like, I wrote, basically, most of the songs and music on Armageddon Massive. Uh, and I... You know, wanted it to. It was just the way I was already kind of going with writing music, like writing more full-on punk rock songs all the way through. And um, yeah, so like we kind of we added like Ghetto Box Smash, and uh, Ethan and Jeff m- mostly came up with the music for Chaos Control, and then uh, like Escape from L.A. or Escape to L.A. Um, <laughs> to those six songs on the demo and that's that's pretty much like what Armageddon Massive is. So if I back up, uh, what, what's the saga? Wake up! That was on that uh, skanktified sampler. That's the original. Because I remember hearing that saga, like then hearing Armageddon Mass being like, "Oh, this is a different band." Well, right. Well, right. Wake up has nothing on it that's written by me. Like that's all. Gotcha. Uh, the other guys. Like I think when we came back from that 
little trip with the Supertones. We had already called our dudes back home, like, yeah, we're starting this band, you know. And then I think when we got back, uh, it was uh, Eric Jones and Jeff Holmes. They had, like, okay, here's a song. They already had it going, you know. And we were like, all right, yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> but, yeah. That's cool. Who'd you... Uh... So yeah, you you got connected with Brandon because of your connection with the Supertones, and he was trying to ride that ska wave, and then you presented him with Armageddon Massive, and it was like, yeah, uh, he was like, do, do I? This? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But you know, I mean, he came when we were in the studio at West Beach. He came while we were recording, and uh, he's like, let me hear a song, and he like lays down on the couch, and we played him like a rough mix of Dead Box Smash. I didn't know what he was going to think, you know, and when he got up, he was just like, I don't know what he said, I don't know, Brandon's so funny, but he had, you know, like, epic or whatever, <laughs> like, you could tell that he right. dominate. So, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. whatever. He, he thought it was dope, and you know, really what it is, is it's sitting there and hearing, like, records recorded in a good studio by a good producer, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, I mean, it's, the music is cool. I mean, whatever. I was just, like, emulating bands that I liked at the time. Especially Ghetto Box, to me, is, like, this other song by the band Citizen Fish. It just, like, it, <laughs> I could tell now what I was trying to do. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it sounds freaking incredible, especially when you're in there in the studio and the playback on the huge monitors. It just, it was epic. It was It was really cool. Yeah, no, still, I mean, I have that record on cassette still, and yeah, you, you put it in and hit play, and, like, it's still, it sounds amazing. But I even remember, like, they they definitely marketed that record. It was, like, some sampler I picked up, and it was the singles from you guys on that sampler were Bulletproof and Rebel Youth, and it was Ska, and then you bought the record, and the first thing you hear was Ghetto Box Master, and you're like, huh, <laughs> this isn't a Ska band. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, it sometimes is. <laughs> well, right, but it has that that very Goldfinger vibe, which Goldfinger still does. Like Goldfinger's last record, it's like Scott and punk all in like song to song with like. So it's like it's that whole thing of like. It it can be both, and it's fine. Yeah, I I still was like loving Fishbone, and I mean, I still do to this day. I never stop. Let me make that clear in the Clash, and so. <laughs> We we wanted, you know, we were full blown like with the idea of like well we're just like a multi genre thing like them you know what I mean like it doesn't really mm -hmm. matter what what genre it is it's like what genre works best for the song you know what genre were you imagining when you wrote the song and that's just all it is you know and I know that's hard I think for people to like accept and it's really hard for to market and all that stuff. I mean, look at Fishbone. I mean, one band deserves it more than any band, in my opinion, them, you know? It's like, same kind of thing. But, you know, what we just right. did, like, what we felt was right, you know, for the song. But yeah. I know, like, if we would have just made it a, yeah, if we would have just made it a full-on ska record or full-on punk, or even reggae, like it would be easier for people to wrap their head around and go, okay, this is definable and that's where it fits, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I was, was going to say, like, e even, like, the clash, right? Like, there's no, like, 
when you hear a clash song you know it's the clash but like they don't they don't stick in this box in this genre right they do whatever they want and it's it's still awesome yeah well yeah and that's what we're aiming for at least hoping for <laughs> yeah and my my yeah. favorite genres at that time was like you know uh the punk bands that were around then like uh swinging utters rancid uh bouncing souls citizen fish and then the punk stuff from a little bit earlier like uh two-tone like specials selector fishbone and just you know classic like roots reggae and that's kind of what we did on that album you know? our our style our version of So, so what was what was touring and the scene like for you since you were kind of in this in between world? And I don't I don't know that I ever remember seeing the Dingies live, whether it was at Cornerstone or another festival or just on tour. I don't know if I just missed it because of schedule conflicts at festivals or if it was just like you guys embarked in in some other path with touring. Like, we didn't do much of the festivals. We played Tom Fest and Cornerstone, but we didn't do all that other stuff. Like, we were not welcome, okay. <laughs> you know? Like, we, <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, I don't think we were seen as, like, safe to go to that other super Christian stuff that I know of because I toured as, like, a roadie for the Supertone. So I've been to, like, Purple Door and and I don't even know what the other ones, but some of them, the man. Creation like, I was, Festival. Sure, like I was out of my element in some of these places because I didn't grow up in a Christian world, you know. Like I, okay. I, I, I was, I was, like, in it at that point. Like uh, by the time I was met Mojo, you know, I kind of, you know, learned about it through them. But uh, um, yeah, we did. We tried to do as much, like. Uh, I don't know, uh, just regular club touring. And mm-hmm. we we did do tours, you know, like just regular bands. I had no idea anything about Tooth and Nail or anything like that. And, um, uh, but touring, I mean, touring was fun. It, it was good. I mean, just like most of the guys that we met in the other bands on Tooth and Nail, we were all trying to get out of, like, the youth group kind of... <laughs> scene or whatever but you know every year every album we toured that kind of stuff with Goldie Hook you know and it was yeah. super fun, super fun and we had a blast and you know you still go out there and try to kick ass on stage and like really do it but um you know there were problems like you know people who would book a show and just be like oh it's totally fine to just have it in my like uh church's main room in Ohio and there'll be pews and there'll be like <laughs> not a stage well a stage with like you know steps up to it and right. push the the pulpit to the side and we'll just use the regular uh 
sound system, and you know yeah, we would yeah. just destroy <laughs> it. We would destroy it. Yeah. So it would just it would just be like hissing, just terrible feedback. That's like the baseline because the bands destroyed, you know, the equipment. And I would say something from the stage. Sorry, I apologize to you to everyone here that you know this. The show doesn't have, like, adequate setup for this kind of, like, punk rock tour to come through. And, you know, and then you would hear, like, oh, dude, the promoter wants to talk to you. And then, like, I'd go to some back room, like, in the nursery of the church, and it's, like, a 15-year-old kid, you know, and he's, like, mad about what I said, you know. But that was a bummer. <laughs> we, 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 you know, we wanted everyone to, like, go through the night and have, like, a dignified experience and we knew what a regular show was and it wasn't like that you know even DIY punk rock shows like they know what to do you know what I mean and it's just like some inexperience involved and us going dude why did they book us here you know what is going on and but uh you know those shows were usually like bigger than our club shows for sure (laughs) For sure, at the, clu- at the clubs, nobody knew who we were, you know. And like, we were touring with bigger, more established bands, and like, it would just be hit or miss, just like it would be on like a uh, to the nail tour. I mean, that's kind of what we refer to it as. But what that means is like a tour booked by Dave Bonson, like Dav Don Artist Agency, which was like this, this. <laughs> booking agency that booked all the bands that were on Tooth and Nail. It was in Irvine. And um, I remember when we first got signed, you know, like, they're like, oh, uh, Dave Bonson wants to talk to you, you know, come down to the office, sign the dab on. And we were already like, no, we made it a point to start this band to not do that. You know what I mean? So, like, however hard mm-hmm. it's going to, however tough it'll be, we're just going to try to play regular shows, and well, that's good enough. And uh, But I did go down there and meet with him because my girlfriend was, like, working as his secretary at the time. And uh, I remember him saying, yeah, Dingy should be on Dabdon. We'll book your tours. It'll be great. And I kind of just told him, like, you know, no, we want to do, like, regular stuff. But, you know, we are... We already kind of made up our mind on this, and he was, like, visibly, like, upset, I think, like, kind of, like, tapping a pin, like, angrily on the desk and <laughs> telling me, like, it wasn't going to work out and all this stuff, and anyway, I left there. I didn't cave, and I felt good about it, but, like, you know, later my girlfriend got fired and all that stuff, and uh, um, we got signed to Twist Management, which was this guy, Dave Blooming, who started out as, like, friends with the guys in um, The Untouchables, which was, like, an early 80s L.A. ska band. Mm -hmm. And uh, by the time he heard about us, and I think he heard about us just because when Armageddon Massive came out, we just took it and sent it out to, like, people that we... People that booked and managed the bands that we liked. And, um, somebody, it, I think it was, um, Stormy Shepherd who does Leave Home Booking. I'm pretty sure it was her. I <laughs> hope I'm not getting that wrong, but, uh, 
she wrote a letter back saying, oh, we, I listened to it, it's cool, you should talk to this girl, Medina, and this was some girl doing booking in New York, and she hooked this up with Dave, but Dave is actually from Marina Del Rey in L.A., and he came all the way out to a show, like, down at uh, Jason Carson's church. I think it was, like, an April Fest show, which is, like, this, this thing he used to do. And, man, there would be, like, uh, I don't know, 800 kids or something. Like, it was big. And so Dave Lumian from Twist Management, who just booked regular bands, like, his whole career, was like, whoa, what is this, like, untapped market? You know what I mean? And uh he signed us, and he, at the time he was, like, managing the descendants and uh Guar and um who else did he have? He had like some uh Louisiana like a uh, big brass band. He had like legitimate acts. So we we felt like, see, what what are we doing here? <laughs> but it was, yeah. it was it was dope because it was like what we set out to do, you know? And so we did from Armageddon Massive until the end of the Tooth and Nail era, until Crucial Conspiracy, we had that Dave Lumian twist management. And so he helped us get on, you know, you know, real tours and real shows that are just, you know, people are showing up because they have one motive. They like your style of music. You know what I mean? There's no yeah. extra, there's no extra motive there. <laughs> you know, it's not like, Wednesday night youth group night, so they're just there because they're dropped off there and they could really care less about your band. They're just there to goof off. And that was what, you know, the other side of it was, the more church-oriented touring. It just it seemed like what we were doing was almost like secondary to the fun. You know, you know the fun night that was planned for the, for the group of kids that right. would be there anyway. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I feel like I've heard that before where it's like, yeah, you could make more money in this area, but nobody actually cares or, you know, they they might not even know about your band or your music. They're just there because their parents dropped them off or it's like the thing to do. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you would get a little bit more money, but you would get, there's other things that were kind of like part of the deal in the church circuit where it was like you get bed and you get hotel rooms and stuff like that and it's like in the clubs you just get like maybe a six pack and that's it like you don't get nothing and uh so you know i could see too where it's like well dang that's cush you know like we can have it made or whatever but anyway you know like what we did half and half just because it's you know there were tons of kids at the shows either either way that were into us and that you know, came and bought the records and bought the merch and sang along and, you know, had that had that experience and you know, it's kinda of stupid to just like be so stubborn about it, but you know, I mean we were all worried about the pigeonholing and it was it's a real big problem still to this day, you know, because we don't consider yeah. us a, ourselves a Christian band. Like to me the term is a joke. It, it doesn't even make sense, but yeah, uh, um, you know, we don't consider ourselves that, but we're always called that, labeled that, and um, you know, it's just like it—it it doesn't help. <laughs> it 
it does not help to call any of it that. Even if you're sincere about you want someone so badly to listen to, I don't know, uh, DC talk, <laughs> it doesn't help to <laughs> tell someone, hey, and by the way, it's Christian. You know what I mean? It's like, just let them listen to it. If they like it, then they like it, and then they're going to get into what it's about. But, you know, it's just kind of like this this weird um, way of, of making people feel safe about that product, you know what I mean? And uh, I never saw our music or albums as products or anything that needed, like, a kind of um, warning about, like, what's coming, you know what I mean? Like, don't worry, it's Christian or whatever, <laughs> whatever you know? Right, it was just it was just your art and your expression. Well, yeah, and it's and it's very different lyrical content from the Dingies and like you know a CCM whatever like this even the Supertones. It's like a, a to- totally different worlds, you know. And so signing the Tooth and Nail was like, um, you know, mu- not much thought put into it other than yeah, we get to make records and they're going to sound good, you know, because you know by that time. Superdome's had already made Superdome Strike Back and like MXPX made like in general at West Beach with Steve. So we knew when Brandon's like, Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna put you in the studio with Cravac, we we're like, Oh dang, you know, like <laughs> how do you say no to that? But yeah. at the same time, like nobody else is trying to sign the dingies, you know? <laughs> like it you know, it's not like we could have oh well let's hold out for something better, like I just, I mean, you you know, you never know, but it was, yeah, like Brandon, I think, realized, you know, well, dang, Superdome's is so big, it's almost like a side project in a way, and they kind of tried to, like, say that a little bit, but it really isn't, wasn't a side project, but, um, I don't know, you know, I think people who were super into the Supertones for what they did, and then hearing, like, oh, well, this is Supertone related, and then getting Armageddon Massive, it's just like, what? Like, I, It seems, like, how is this related, you know? Right, it was so not only just different musically, like, the lyrical content was not in the same ballpark, and it's, it's I, I, I feel like I've said this on this podcast before, it's not to talk trash about the Supertones and their lyrical content, but it was not, like maybe the most in-depth or like engaging right like to some people i'm sure it was and at the time when i heard it it connected with me but like now it it doesn't hold up the same way a dingy song does right like yeah i mean i think i guess it depends on where you are at you know uh but right you know that that was like a target audience of almost like junior high kids in right <laughs> youth groups, you know, yeah, and so, I remember, I can't remember if I read this, or I heard this, someone told me, uh, that they were playing Rebel Youth real loud, and they're, like, after their youth group meeting, and it was blaring, and some parent was like, why do they want to knock down the aristocrats? <laughs> 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 like, dude. Why, why, why is it even playing? And, you know, it's like, 
you can think like, oh, well, it would have been done better if it was marketed to a different audience or whatever. But I don't really think that. I just I feel like what was meant to happen happened, and you know, almost uh, like I I hope that like in some way we were kind of opening up the eyes of these kids who were in these kind of sheltered upbringings and these bubbles of only being allowed to listen to certain approved music and, you know, ideas like that. Where you have to throw out all your rock and roll and all that stuff, you know. Was there uh, ever any pressure from from Tooth and Nail uh, with Sundown to Midnight or Crucial Conspiracy as far as style or uh, any content on the record? Or was it just like you guys were more comfortable with who you were in songwriting and could just do whatever you wanted? Um, there's never pressure stylistically or what, you know, type of music we should play, or anything like that, you know. Um, uh, but, yeah, there was a song recorded for Sundown to Midnight that I feel is, like, the best one we recorded during that session, and it's a Linton Quasi Johnson cover of a song called Fight Them Back, and, like, it's about you know, resisting fascists in the choruses, uh, we're gonna smash their brains in cause they ain't got nothing, you know. And I wanted that to be on the album, but they said, no, that can't be on. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, it's really good though. It's, it's on our YouTube. Um, there's like a compilation of, um, a lot of unreleased stuff that I put up there as a video just so people can hear it because I tried for a few years to get that like officially released with them and they were interested but just eventually I stopped hearing back from them Uh, and then uh, by the third album Crucial Conspiracy I remember they were kind of like, not sure whether they were going to even do it at all. And they said, well, for sure you're not going to do it with Kravak. If anything, it'll be uh, with Gene Eugene at the Green Room, which we had already recorded a bunch with Gene Eugene, and we loved him, so we were stoked for that. But uh, they said, you're going to have to submit all the lyrics for the for the album first. I don't think they hmm. wanted to hear demos or anything. We made demos and... I made acoustic demos and then we made demos with the band, but I don't remember them wanting to hear hear it. They just wanted to um, see the lyrics. And so I sent them all the lyrics and there's one song on the album called Conspiracy Against the Youth and it's like kind of tacked on to another track 
called um, Moving Underground. So it's kind of like a hidden track because it's together in one. And the reason yeah. why is, is because when I submitted the lyrics, they said about that one, no, that's too negative. Um, that one can't go on. But I was like, no, it, it has to. So we just kind of like snuck it in there at the end of that track. So it didn't like have its own track and real big say conspiracy against the youth, you know, and then have them <laughs> notice. So, um, yeah, I made it on the album regardless <laughs> of the When Armageddon Massive uh, was coming out, they put a lot behind it, and, and everyone who was involved, like Kervak and um, Darren Doan, and then, like, forget the guy that, forget his name, but I think he was owner of, like, a record label, like Jade Tree or something, but he was also a photographer, and I think he did our photo shoot for Armageddon Massive, but he was also kind of friends with Brandon and... They were all telling them, like, oh, dude, this is going to be your next big band. You know, this is going to be huge. Mm -hmm. Darren Doan, the the video guy, told us, like, that Brandon had told him, we're going to do five videos for the Armageddon Massive album. That's how big they thought. (laughs) That's how big they thought it was going to be. They thought you guys were going to be the Supertones. Well, yeah. um, Yeah. yeah, or whatever. I, what else? MXPX was big for them. That's why at the end of the the one video that we made, there, it kind of seems like there's this scene out of nowhere. Um, and it's because, like, I was going to try and make, like, a story for all five videos, kind of like where one ends, the next one begins, and at the end kind of come around to the beginning again. But, yeah, we just made that one, so there's, <laughs> there's like, this scene at the end of the video. <laughs> Comes out of I just kind of assume at this point uh, the relationship with Tooth and Nail ended just because you had a three-album deal and that was the end of your deal and you just parted ways. Is that correct? No, they signed us for five. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, so like they, like I said, they, they made me, sh- you know, present the lyrics, but obviously we made the album and that album came out and we... We toured 
you know, most of that year, I think. I think our last show was in Tom Fest. Um, I don't know what month that was, but um, around that time when we came home from Tom Fest, uh, they, I, I think they just sent an email like, yeah, we're not going to, I think how they say it is like, we're not going to take up the option or whatever to make a fourth album or whatever. So you guys gotcha. are free to record for whoever you want. Gotcha. And then it was uh, almost, not quite, yeah, but almost uh, 10 years in between releases uh, between Crucial Conspiracy and Rebel Soul Sound System. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, um, so Crucial Conspiracy was in 2001, and... Um, it's like January 2001, and uh, Rebel Soul was, I think, September or so of 2010. Uh-huh. Yeah, so um, right around that time, uh, at the end of 2001, is when I moved into the apartment where Rebel Soul was recorded. And, um, you know, we were still playing shows. Uh, we didn't, like, book any tours, but we played I don't know, kind of a lot. Mostly just like downtown Long Beach, but we would go like to Phoenix and play or like up uh, Northern California. Not Northern California, but I mean outside of LA and stuff. Um, but we were just kind of like getting jobs for the first time, you know, like getting our, <laughs> own, our own place and like not being as uh, free to do stuff, but one, still like practicing and writing the new songs and, um, we all kind of lived, not all of us, but the majority of us at one point lived in the same apartment. Uh, well, there were two apartments, one on top of the other. And, uh, yeah, so we got the ideas then, like, oh, well, nobody likes us, let's just record it ourselves, you know? Like, <laughs> uh, but that's it us like forever like first i had to like get a laptop and then i had to, like, yeah. some you know an inbox which is like the the mic inputs and then i had to save up more and get some mics you know and, um around that same time it's uh i got i forget how i even figured this out but somehow <laughs> after all the years of being on tooth and nail um, all my royalties were going to some other guy with like my same name but different middle initial <laughs> through <Whoa. laughs> yeah so I got in touch with them and they were like oh yeah this is not good and we're going to write you a check right away and so they sent me a check um, so like I never got anything the whole you know time I was on tooth and nail because some other dude was getting it, and uh, I, eventually I just got this, like, lump sum, which was not even anything. It was, like, uh, 6500 bucks for the whole career. <laughs> but that helped, us, that helped us, like, uh, you know, buy some stuff and really start recording. So, like, I think it took about 2005 till we actually went to the studio and, like, laid down some initial tracks for Rebel Soul Sound System. But then, you know, that was mostly all recorded 
in my apartment and just, you know, any place we could find that we could record. We would bring laptops and little portable setups. And uh out at other friends' houses and stuff like that. So it's just, you know, it took a <laughs> it took a while. Um Yeah. <laughs> I had kids at the same I mean I was producing records and children at the same time. Yeah. And uh recording, you know I recorded like twenty albums with this uh street performer guy, Hisao Shinagawa. He's like uh like the most prolific songwriter I've ever known. He writes songs like every day. He's got I don't know how many thousands now, but um, I would see him at the farmer's market, and then I I asked him, you know, who records you? And he's like, nobody. So I started recording him all in the same apartment. And then, um, yeah, about um, 2009, we had all the mixes of all the songs that ended up on Rebel Soul. But I decided, like, I was sick of living in the city, and my kids were getting older, so I moved to Maui and... Uh, for like the first year in Maui, I just worked on the artwork, and then yeah, by like twenty, twenty ten, I just threw it up like on a, some free music download site. Like that was pretty much it. That's the release. I mean, we have hard copies that people order, mm-hmm. but yeah, that's it. <laughs> kind of theme or direction you guys were moving or like a, a concept when you went into writing rebel soul or was it just no theme or concept really but um they were the exact song like they were like the best group of songs that i had after the year after crucial conspiracy like um i didn't like you know years down the process start writing new ones and think oh this has got to go on the album so they were the you know I figured it was going to be the album we would record for the fourth Tooth and Nail album I mean they were the same songs you know um, gotcha but I think overall it's just obviously exploring way more genres and um, trying to cover way more ground than we ever did um not just being solely about punk, reggae, ska, but like trying to get into Afro beat and jungle, drum and bass, uh, hip hop. There's like, I mean, half the songs are like sample beats and like, uh, drum programming, you know, like, um, so it's definitely like trying to get out there, like in, like in a, uh, like the clash with Sandinista, like kind of, yeah. concept of uh yeah all kind of 
you know, global kind of feel to the music and stuff. Yeah, no, I think it's it's super cool. I mean, they're like a test the champion. I think Port Royal, Port Royal Sound is my favorite dingy song. I think ever um, Mercy triumphs Mercy triumphs over Judgment. Who stole soul and rock and roll? Like all those songs are amazing. Like it's such a different crazy record, but they're just amazing songs in there. Yeah, Port Royal Sound. I put that on today, and I was like, oh yeah, no, this song still just is so good. I I love it. Yeah. yeah, some girl on uh, on uh, Facebook said, "Thank you for Rebel Soul. It is a, a perfect record, and it's <laughs> it's so funny to me. I love that that someone feels that and thinks that, but it's funny to me because like it's such a cacophony and loud like din of noise, you know, like it's it's every wrong way to record music, you know, it's like <laughs> we were just learning, we didn't know what we were doing, it was like uh, Fisher Price, my first album kit, you know what I mean like <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so it's great to hear that the song can come through all that, like, you know, coming at you, that bombardment but it was kind of like if there was a theme or or what I was kind of going for was that, you know, like the feeling of being downtown in the city and everything's flashing and honking and in your face, you know. And um, uh, I I feel like it would be cool to do in a studio, like to record properly and <laughs> good equipment and nice instruments because, uh, you know, they're, to me they're cool songs. They, they, they represent to me like my kind of like, era my political awakening like uh after 9-11 like actually paying attention to world politics where before that i i had like really kind of no concept or i didn't really follow what was going on you know and, mm-hmm. you know i never really once in the whole time being in the dingies like ever considered like a bill clinton as the president you know but then like once it was 9-11 and Bush, like, these kind of things couldn't get out of your head, you know? It was, like, every day, right. you know? And so it means a lot to me uh, in regards to that time, like, kind of listening to what's going on in the world and paying attention, you know? <laughs> For the latest releases, what made you, one, change the band name, and then, two, really hone in on doing uh, Ska again? Um, well, the name change was just because it was not like a Dingy's record, it, because it was just Ska, you know? To yeah. me, it's all the same guys, there's a couple of new horn players, but... Yeah, it's the same Rebel Soul and Crucial Conspiracy band. It's the same five core, uh, me and Bean and Landers and Dave and Scrogers. And, uh, um, but yeah, like it didn't feel like, well, 
let me put it this way. Okay, so Rebel Soul Sound System were the songs I wrote right after Crucial Conspiracy, and I felt like that fit, like, uh, you know, it's a good continuum. And then right a year after that, while we're making Rebel Soul, I've written all these songs that I still have demoed that I refer to as deep ecology. And, you know, if I can get into the studio again, the next thing I would like to do is to record the next Dingy's album, which is Deep Ecology. And, um, okay. uh, that to me would be considered a Dingy's album because it is a multi-genre and it's mostly what we've covered, you know, mostly based in reggae and ska and punk rock, but it is the feel of a Dingy's album. So when we did Pagan Rejected, um, yeah, of course, obviously, before we did it, the intent was to make a record of all ska. And um, once it came out, it's like, this isn't the, in my mind, the continuum of the dingies, you know, after Rebel Soul. To me, it's that deep ecology stuff that I hope to be able to record someday. But um, I just felt, yeah, I just felt like it needed a, a different name. It, it it can be considered the same band. It really doesn't bother me if people do, you know, but um, I just wanted to differentiate it. And the reason being is because, you know, Ska is like what did it all for me. Ska in the, in the OC Ska scene is what got me into playing music, you know, and I've never gotten out of it. I've never, you know, thought... Oh, why was I in the sky? I mean, it's like a joke for people to be like, aha, ska, and that's the joke, you know what I mean? <laughs> right. But, uh, <laughs> to me, it's much more uh, serious and a hardcore and a tough style of music. And mostly that's because I listen to, like, Jamaican ska and two-tone, and, you know, I'm not really into, like, uh, all the ska core and third wave and that kind of kind of like carnival <laughs> the way they take it into it just becomes wacky and goofy and stuff like um to me like blue beat you know like original jamaican ska like that is like my heavy metal like to me that's like the toughest <laughs> beat that there is you know and so yeah. i wanted all the peg and the rejected songs which are highly like political and like literally you know naming <laughs> you know, things that are taking place in real life. It's not just like this metaphor for, you know, good versus evil or whatever, but um, very specific. And uh, I wanted it to have that tough beat, you know, that that serious kind of pulse and throb that that, that style of Scott has. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, I mean, I, yeah, I was I was a big fan as soon as I heard it. And like second set, like, the opening track on that EP, don't take it out on me. Like, man, the, the lyrics, yeah. Like, you you can tell there's something different lyrically that it's more um, focused and has a voice and not an agenda, but like you know, calling things out, which but, is yeah, cool. yeah, um, yeah. I like that song too, uh, and we try to make it new. You know, like, fourth wave is called fourth wave because I wanted it to be like, yo, this is the future. But we're not, like, going to revive some old sound or continue, you know, this, the 90s sound or whatever. Like, 
there has to be an evolution into the next step, you know. And uh, that's why, don't take it out of me. To me, it's like a drum and bass or like a jungle beat, you know. And then uh, the lyrics or the vocals are like, it's like hip-hop, you know. Uh, uh, yeah. It's not It's not just trying to play ska, you know. It's <laughs> trying to kind of uh, go somewhere new with, with that idea of ska, you know. And I mean, what ska, what is ska? Ska is the upbeat, you know? That's all it is. It doesn't even matter what instrument you play it on. It's just that throb, you know, that offbeat. And so you can put it over lots of different styles of drum beats and genres of music, you know? So, uh, it's been about a year now since you put out uh, Second Set, right? So, you you got songs for another Dingy's record. Are, is there going to be more Peg and the Rejected in the future? or? Yeah, I want to do them all. Uh, the, but the last thing I released is a solo album, Dread Pirate Robert. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to yeah. about that, too. Um, yeah, that was um, on my birthday last year. So, almost a year. Um and basically, that was just all the B-sides to the Rebel Soul Sound System era. Like, you know, I was always trying to get the guys to come and record more for Rebel Soul. And when they wouldn't, it was just me. I would work on some other stuff. And that basically became that Dread Pirate Roberts Word Power album. Um, yeah, and it's more diverse. I guess it's more kind of similar to Rebel Soul where... It's all over the place. Um, but yeah, so I've always had the idea to do that Deep Ecology Dingies, and then I have a whole other group of songs written after that for another Dingies album. And then, um, I don't know, it's hard, it's, sometimes it's hard to tell, but I, I'd say maybe I'm about like halfway there on a, on some more of a, like a fully ska pegging the rejected album. Maybe I got like six good songs for that. So I don't know what order that will all get done, but you know, I never know that. I just, <laughs> I, just yeah, yeah. Work, I just hope it works out. You know, like, but yeah, we talk. We we always talk. I mean, the band still texts each other all on like a group text every day almost. But and we always talk about doing more. But it's just like when and where, you know. Uh, most everybody's in uh, SoCal, but I live in Humboldt, and Bean still lives out in Maui, so it's kind of like just the logistics of finding a time in life for everyone to converge their lives, you know? Yeah. But you guys aren't done yet. No, I mean, no, we don't intend to be done. I don't know if we ever will be done, you know? Like, I have a lot of have way more songs written and, you know, saved away than I want to even think about because it's overwhelming, but it seems like an endless task, you know? <laughs> like, I'll, yeah. 
I'll never get to the end. <laughs> but uh, it would be nice to be able to record more. Yeah, for sure. Oh, and then uh, the newest thing that I'm doing is, uh, I mean, this this is old recordings too, but we're finally like putting it together. I've I've been doing vocal sessions with Dave for like a like a punk rock, like a hardcore record, but um, you know, like all Dave songs and the Dingies that are like hardcore yeah. punk. Um, but, uh, I mean, it's not simple as that, because, like, a lot of it is, like, uh, jungle beats and, you know, it's not necessarily, it loops, it's not necessarily, like, a band in the studio type of recording, it's more like a, like, punk rock, but kind of hip-hop producer, I don't know if that makes sense, Atari Teenage Riot, or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not 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 everything's gonna sound like uh, Staff Scar- Sergeant Scriba. No, I mean it's like those yeah. songs. it's like that kind of songwriting, Staff Sergeant Scriba, but but played through uh, beats and breakdowns and like we don't just stick to guitars, you know. Like we could put keyboards and just weird stuff on there. Um, but yeah, that's what we hopefully that'll probably be the next thing to come out. Um, I don't know when, but. We just got like one more day of doing like some vocals and then we could start mixing those songs. But we've been trying to do that for years, trying to do a hardcore record with him as the vocalist. And uh, he was living in Japan for many years too, but he's back down in OC, so we've been working on that. And uh, hopefully once those recordings are out, we'll take that same band uh, or idea and go in the studio with a proper you know, bass, drums, guitar, band, and do like a straight up, like hardcore punk record. Thanks for listening to As the Story Grows. Our theme song was written and composed by the legendary Bob Nana. If you like what you hear, subscribe on iTunes and give the show a rating and review. If you'd like to support the show financially, click on the Patreon link at asthestorygrows.com. If you enjoyed this episode, share it on social media with your friends. Much appreciated, and thanks for listening.